book of Judges, chapter 7, as we continue our studies in the Gideon narrative. Weak, feckless, not-so-brave Gideon, yet it shows forth that it's God who brings salvation. So we're going to look at chapter 7 tonight. Uh, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And twenty-two thousand of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them, uh, test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped putting their hand to their mouth was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save, uh, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant." And, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pirah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the word of Gideon, the, son of, uh, the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided the three hundred men into three, hundred, into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand, with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch 
and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three uh, companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the three hundred blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zererah and as far as the border of Abel Maholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize uh, from them the watering places as far as Beth Berah and the Jordan. Then the, uh, all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Berah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Amen. Well, it's unfortunate in our life that pride always rears its ugly, hideous head. Even when people try to be humble... Sometimes it can come across as a humble brag. Look at how humble I'm being. Look how great I look. Look look at what I am doing. And our Heavenly Father in His wisdom often shows us our pride and reminds us that victory comes from Him. Now the same problem of pride has been the same throughout all the ages. Technology may change, but God's people and man as a whole have always struggled with the same sins, especially saying that salvation is by my hand, rather than the Lord's hand. And this is a clear problem that we see in the time of Gideon. It's exactly why the Lord whittles down the entire army down to 300. He wants Israel to know that salvation comes by the Lord's hand and not by their might whatsoever. That's why the deliverance Yahweh brings is so remarkable. It is so remarkable that it shows the salvation is of the Lord. Now remember, that's the main point of the book of Judges. Salvation is of the Lord. And usually that's uh, connected and juxtaposed with the wickedness of Israel. We see the degeneration of Israel. We see the Canaanization of Israel. Israel is no longer, in a lot of ways, looking like the separated people, but they're looking like the nations around them. But often throughout, we see this cycle. We see this sin, oppression, and deliverance. And even when the people don't cry out, the Lord sometimes is still pleased to deliver them. His salvation is of the Lord. And we're in the main body of the book. We're in the main cycles. Uh, We've seen various judges. We saw Othniel. We saw Ehud. We saw Barak. And we're in the section now with Gideon and the Midianites. It is the Lord who saves. And the Lord who saves is the Lord who is to be worshipped. That's what Israel needs to understand. They should not worship the Baals. They should not worship the Asherahs. They should not be like the nations around them. Because there's only one God, and there's only one God who is mighty to save. And he is the one who does it. Because the problem is very clear. That's man's pride in victory. Man has pride in many things. Man likes to boast in many different things. But one of the worst offenses is not giving God the glory in a deliverance. Boasting in a thing that is good without acknowledging that the victory has come from the Lord. Now for God's people, again, we struggle with this remaining corruption... Uh, We should have a sober recognition of gifts, physical, mental, and spiritual. But we must also praise God and recognize where they have come from 
and God is pleased to give and to take away. And so in Judges 7, the Lord brings deliverance by demonstrating that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. The main idea of the book of Judges is the main idea with what we see in chapter 7. And we see the Lord does so by way of remarkable whittling of the armies of Israel. So this deliverance, not for man's glory, could be another way to describe what's going on here. It is for God's glory. And we'll look at this under two headings. First of all, we'll see the glory of the Lord, verses 1 through 8. And then secondly, we'll see the sword of the Lord, verses 9 through 25. So the glory of the Lord, verses 1 through 8. And then the sword of the Lord, verses 9 through 25. So let's first look at the glory of the Lord in verses 1 through 8. And notice in verses 1 through 3, we see the Lord is making sure that glory does not come to man. Glory is going to be of the Lord. And certainly we have to understand the context with what's going on with the Midianites, with Gideon. We see the calling of Gideon. He's the youngest from one of the smallest tribes of Manasseh. We see the Midianites come in these locusts. They engage in these marauding expeditions with the Amalekites. They come up every year. They swarm uh, the people. The people try to plant uh, crops. But here come the Midianites. Here come the Amalekites and they take everything. But now we see in verse 33 of chapter 6, the Midianites come again, but the Lord has called Gideon. Gideon is raised up as deliverer. Remember the judges in the book of Judges were primarily deliverers, primarily saviors who came to deliver the people out from the oppression of a certain enemy. And in this case, the enemy was the Midianites. And so God has been good to Gideon. God has assured Gideon. Uh, Gideon clearly struggles with some faith, but God is gracious. God is kind, and God uh, reminds and encourages Gideon uh, of who he is. We see that God is peace with him. Gideon can speak to him. That's one of the key things we saw in chapter 6. The Lord says, peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. The Lord is, uh, is speaking. The Lord is reconciling. The Lord uh, is the one whom the people of Israel ought to go to, but in reality, they're going to the Baals. But nonetheless, the Lord still raises up a deliverer. And so there's this assurance of, defeat, of, of deliverance, the assurance of Midian's defeat. And so we see the whittling down of that army beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerub Baal... That is Gideon. Remember, he's given that name in verse 32 of chapter 6. Therefore, on that day, his dad uh, calls him Jerubbaal. All the people call him Jerubbaal, which means let Baal plead, because they were worshiping idols. There were idols in Gideon's father's house. God tells Gideon, smash those idols. And then here comes Gideon's father, Joash, saying, look at Baal. He's nothing. Let him plead for himself. And so... Uh, Verse 1, we see the nickname or the other name given to Gideon is mentioned here. I don't necessarily know why uh, it's mentioned here because clearly the author is telling us that it is Gideon. Uh, Could be that Gideon is reluctant. I don't know. Or maybe it's trying to show the might of Yahweh. Let Baal plead because Baal cannot do anything. It's a mock. It's a chiding. It's let's see what Baal can do because there's only one God who can bring salvation. That's going to come by way of Gideon. So I don't necessarily know why that's there, but 
Certainly we know what it, what it means. Let Baal flee. So Jerubbaal, uh, they're arising for battle. We see the tribes who are arising for battle. It's Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Manasseh. Uh, West Manasseh, remember there is uh, East Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan. This is West Manasseh. Uh, so they gather, they encamp by the well of Herod. So the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. So they're ready, they're gathered for battle. Uh, they're going to go to war to, uh, with Midian. And then we see the miracle of the Lord or what the, the Lord is going to do through them. And he's going to first whittle down uh, that army. The army is just too much. The problem of man's glory. Verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see, there are too many Israelites still because if Israel wins the battle, then they're going to say, we did it. Israel has forsaken the Lord. Israel has turned away from the Lord. Israel has gone after other idols. And so Israel needs to be reminded where that salvation comes from. We certainly see something similar in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord tested them in the wilderness as he guided them. We know that their wilderness wandering was, a, was punishment. Uh, for the first generation's lack of faith and trusting in the Lord and fearful of the Anakim and the giants in the land. But still, Yahweh was with them. And so he tests them. He humbles them. Verse 16 and verse 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy 8. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good in the end. Then you, uh, then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me all this well. So it's Yahweh who brings the salvation. It's Yahweh who provides for his people. And Israel needs to be reminded of that very thing. Lest they say, my own hand has saved me. And so the first whittling comes with verse 3. And it's something we see in Deuteronomy 20 with principles of warfare. If there are men who are fearful, let them go. Because fear can be contagious. If there are fearful men, then they might make other people fearful. And so you don't want to uh, uh, decrease the morale of the troops. And so, what does he say? Whoever is fearful, verse 3, and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. Fine, let them go. Because they're going to cause problems in the Lord's army. But notice how many men are fearful. I mean, the Midianites, they came like locusts. That's the language that is used of them. They are numerous. And so, yes, there's 32,000 guys, but they're probably, humanly speaking, no match for Midian. And so we see the whittlings. 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. That's a total starting point of 32,000 men in the army. Now it's just down to 10. That means 22 were afraid. 22 were scared. 22 did not trust, perhaps trust, in the promises of God. Because the key purpose is to make sure God receives the glory. To make sure that Israel doesn't recognize that they do not need God. Now that's a good application when it comes to salvation, right? If a man doesn't see his need, he's not going to see his need for a savior. If a man does not see his sin, he is not going to see his need for Christ who dies for sin. That's a huge problem today, isn't it? 
That's a huge problem on a myriad of ways. With those who have a lot of money, I'm fine, things are good, everything's great. With young people, ah, I'll just worry about religion when I'm older. I just want to have fun right now. Everything's fine. I'll think about it later when I'm closer to dying uh, when I grow in my old age. People don't see their need. That's why we have to preach sin. That's why we have to preach the bad news. That's why we have to preach the law of God. Here's how you're awful. Here's how you're sinful. Here's how you are in need. Then here is Christ who can remedy. Here is Christ who can save you from your sins. And so Israel needs that reminder for them. And certainly it's a good reminder for us as well. So it's whittled down to 10,000. And then we see the Lord says again, it's too many. The glory is going to come from God. It's going to be with an army of 300. And we see this in verses 4 through 8. The problem persists. The people are still too many. The Lord says to Gideon, the people are still too many. Just as he said to Gideon, the people are still too many in verse 2. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. So the Lord is going to do a test to set apart those who are going to fight in this battle. And he says, then it will be that of whom I say to you. So the Lord is choosing. This one shall go with you. The same shall go with you. Of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you. The same shall not go. So the Lord is setting apart this test. The Lord is setting apart uh, his method here for, uh, to make sure uh, there are just enough for the Lord's are many. There are, there are too many who fight in the battle. And so he does this test by way of how one drinks. So he says in verse 5, So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapsed when they bring the water up to their mouth, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Now, as we're reading this the first time, you're kind of going, great, we got 9,700 guys. 300 did this. The hope is we get the 9,700, not the 300. That perhaps could be what Gideon is thinking. But notice what the Lord says. Notice throughout this narrative, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, it is the word of the Lord that Gideon must trust. And so the Lord said, verse 7 to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Can you imagine being Gideon who already struggles with trust and faith and he's kind of a weak man? Now the Lord says, yeah, it's going to be the 300, not the 97. But again, it's to show that God brings that salvation. The 300 men who put the water up to their mouth, those ones shall be the ones that the Lord shall use. Let all the other people go. Every man to his place. So it goes from 32,000 down to 300. Now, some commentators like to make comments about the sophistication and the character of the men who uh, distinguishing those who lapped and those who bent down to drink from the water. It's probably just arbitrary. There's nothing in there that says these guys were better than the other. It's just the way the Lord set them apart. Those who lap this way versus those who bent down and put their faces in the water. And it's 300 who lapped. And so they are going to be the ones that God is going to use. 
And so, again, it's pointing out that salvation is of the Lord. Now, none of this is prescriptive, by the way, for modern military warfare. You don't have to do this sort of thing. I hope people don't take that as an application and read it that way. This is a moment in redemptive history, but it does demonstrate for us that salvation is of the Lord. That salvation is God's glory, is, is for God's glory, and God is going to glorify himself in that salvation. And God, in many ways, demonstrates throughout the world his glory. And even in other military situations, God is going to demonstrate his glory in those situations. But it doesn't mean we have to, you know, whittle down to 300 men. Because all this is meant to be a reminder that we ought to glorify God. In contrast with the problem, man who glories in himself. I mean, Philippians chapter 2 is all about what? Considering others better than ourselves. It's all about what? Considering God better than ourselves. But so often we struggle, don't we? At least I do. I don't know if you do, but I still struggle with pride and arrogance and thinking I'm wonderful and thinking I have the best ideas in the world and getting offended at what people say to me because we all have pride and arrogance. Davis says, does not 7-2 speak to us? Does it not tell us there is a certain deviousness in the God's people, a tendency to steal God's praise? Does it not teach us that sometimes he cannot trust us with his work unless we realize how inadequate we are to do it? This may explain why God frequently chooses unlikely instruments. Brethren, sometimes it's a mercy of God in the, pa- in the pastoral world that God does not cause a church to blow up. That is, to just grow so fast. Do you want to know why? So that the pastor's head doesn't grow. I mean, God is good to know a pastor, and he knows the men he has chosen, and he is good in a merciful way to humble them, to make sure that they are not out of the ministry because their heads got way too big. But salvation is of the Lord, and we ought to glory in God and not ourselves. Pride really is a terrible thing, and it does arise with us, again, in so many ways. When we get easily offended, you know what that is? It's pride. When we have anxiety, according to 1 Peter 5, you know what it is? It's pride, because we don't trust in God. When we promote what we read, when we promote our own sermons, when we promote our own shows or podcasts, when we promote our own devotions on social media and try to tell the whole world about that, you know what that is, brethren? It is pride. Why do we have to tell the whole world? Why can't we just go into our closets? Why are we so often like Pharisees, where we have to tell everybody we're doing all these things? I mean, I do it too, you do it, we all do it, that sort of thing. But, you know, it would be good for us if we just did our devotions quietly, not telling everybody all that we're doing all the time. Boasting is pride, not minding our own business is pride. Lots of pride, right? Now, when I say this, I'm not saying we can never speak into the lives of others or we shouldn't do our devotions or I'm not trying to downplay the anxieties of life or the hurts done by others to you and I. But maybe all those things are meant to teach us something. Everything in life for the child of God is meant to teach us something. Everything in the life of the child of God is meant to be for our good. And what is the good to be more Christ-like? And it might be in the moment we go through a thing that we don't enjoy, but that thing we don't enjoy is driving us and reminding us and conforming us to that which is good, namely to be like our 
Christ. It teaches us the world doesn't exactly revolve around us, does it? We all think it does. We come out of the womb thinking the world revolves around us, but it does not. Our purpose in life is what? To glorify God. That is our purpose. To glorify God whether you eat or drink. When you have a sip of water, when you, you know, have your breakfast, you glorify God when you do that very thing. When you go to your job, you glorify God in that very thing. And most importantly, when we come to worship on the day that's set apart, it is to glorify God. That is our chief aim. God just enjoys his glory, right? God doesn't create glory. He enjoys his glory. And we glorify him. And he deserves our glory, but he doesn't need our glory. But we ought to do it because he is God and we are man. And even our gifting is of the Lord. If you're following the main Shane calendar, you would have read Daniel 2 yesterday. Do you remember what Daniel prayed? He first of all blessed the Lord that you give wisdom. And he says, Lord, thank you for giving me wisdom. That's how it should be, shouldn't it? We need help. We need aid. We we have a request that we bring to the Lord. Lord, help me in this endeavor. Lord, please provide for me in this way. And then when he does, you know what we need to do? Thank him for it. And to praise his name for it. And recognize that he is the one who has brought about those things. So all of life is for God's glory. And what we see in verses 1 through 8 reminds us of that very thing. And thankfully the Lord glorifies himself by his sword which is what we see in verses 9 through 25. We see the sword of the Lord in verses 9 through 25. And notice we see, uh, under as we start our second point, the sword of the Lord, we see the word about God's sword in verses 9 through 18. Notice how kind God is to Gideon. Again, Gideon, I said he's feckless, that's true. I did say that he struggles with faith, but notice the Lord knows his frame. Verse 9, it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Go, you can take it. But if you need a little extra assurance, here's what I'm providing for you. And God provides a little extra assurance. I mean, Gideon needed that assurance. He needed the, the angel of the Lord to wait as Gideon prepared something for him. He needed the fleece. Twice, the Lord said, the Lord assured, the Lord said, By my hand, uh, the, uh, Gideon asked the Lord for this, uh, for this request. Uh, the fleece is covered in water, and then the fleece is not covered in the water, and the ground is all wet. So the Lord provides, and again, he does it for him. But if you are afraid, verse 10, the Lord initiates this. To go down, go down to the camp with Purah, or Purah, your servant, which is his right-hand man, and you shall hear what they say. The word is going to come from an unexpected place. The word is going to come, ironically, from Midian. You'd think that the word would come from Israel, the people of God, but in this case, it's going to come from the enemy. Then, uh, so they go down against the camp. Then he, uh, then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So they go down to the camp. They go down to, to, according to what the Lord said, but then we see this interjection in verse 12. Midian is formidable. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the peoples of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. They're massive. They're a huge army. And they've got 300 guys against this massive army. How is the Lord going to bring 
this about. They have camels without number as the sand by the seashore, which we saw in chapter, uh, chapter 6. And so Gideon goes down, verse 13, had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion, an unexpected word, the dream of the enemy. Now, dreams were a way God revealed redemptive historical things in the Old Testament. And typically, you actually see dreams with outsiders. God speaks to Pharaoh by way of a dream, but they still need an interpreter. Nebuchadnezzar, God speaks to him by way of a dream, but they still need an interpreter from the Lord. Interpreter who is uh, acquainted with the Lord of glory. And we see once again here, but interesting that one of the Midianites answers this question. One of the Midianites answers what this dream is. Now again, uh, we see this dream that is given. Now, dreams no longer apply <laughs> to the people of God in a redemptive historical way. If you have a dream, it's just a dream. And let's be honest, most of the time our dreams are absurd. We, we have no need for continuing revelation anymore because we have the word of God with us. But Gideon receives, we, he overhears this dream that is told, and it is a word of the Lord through, providentially, through the enemy. When Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. And notice how absurd it is. Maybe it's to highlight how God is going to use absurd things uh, to bring about that salvation. But notice, to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Death by wheat. This is not an anti-gluten sort of thing going on here. You can have gluten if you wish. I'm sure some uh, anti-gluten nuts will want to take this and apply it. But uh, we're not saying that. If you like gluten, great. If you don't like gluten, that's perfectly fine as well. But it is kind of absurd. Here comes this barley bread tumbling through into the camp of Midian. And it overturns the camp. Now, why is it a loaf of barley? No idea. Maybe there's some connections to the beginning of, of this section as the people had to... Uh, Gideon had to thresh wheat at the wine press. They, they didn't have a loaf of bread. They, they struggled to find wheat. But maybe the thing that Gideon has taken is now going to be their downfall. It's going to, I don't know what it is, but in any case, here comes this absurd thing. A loaf of barley comes rolling into the camp and it knocks down the tent. And then notice we see the interpretation of it, verse 14. Then his companion answered, so this Midianite guy has a dream, and a Midianite guy interprets it. And this would not be good. I mean, if, if you were the king in Midian or one of the princes, and you heard one of your men, one of your privates, saying, no, it's nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. I mean, morale should be down in the camp of Midian, if that's what people are thinking. But this guy recognizes it, the unexpected word that comes from a Midianite. And this was, again, all for Gideon, right? This was to give Gideon assurance. This is a word of the Lord for Gideon that he might be encouraged and know and be assured that the Lord is with him. So we see that unexpected interpretation. Gideon, it's all about Gideon, the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. Gideon is coming and God is going to use him to deliver Midian and the whole camp. And so this provides encouragement for Gideon. And we see that in verses 15 through 18. 
We see his encouragement. We see his worship. We see the plan that's going to happen. Verse 15. So it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. God is gracious to us, isn't he? Again, in our foibles, in our faults, in our sins, there's forgiveness and mercy. And when we receive that forgiveness, when we receive that mercy, when we receive that assurance from God, what ought we to do? We ought to praise him. We ought to honor him. We, there's no, we should have a myriad of reasons for why we should come on Sunday to praise his name. We should have a myriad of reasons for why we pray to God and uh, give our adoration to him for what he does. And so for Gideon, he's had all these assurances. And again, the Lord is with him. So he worships. He comes back to the camp. Verse 15, he returns to the camp of Israel, says, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Those 300 probably would have been thinking, why is it just 300? What is going on here? And so they need that assurance as well. So here comes Gideon. The Lord is going to do it. And then we see this strategy. And again, if you were engaging in military strategy, this would have been the plan that you'd call not bar factor 45. Because verse 16, he divides the 300 men into three companies, puts a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches and uh, inside the pitchers. What about swords? What about bows? Why is it trumpets? And why is it pitchers? And why is it torches? Again, you'd be scratching your head wondering what is going on here. And so Gideon gives the plan, verse 17. He said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That's the strategy. Trumpets, blowing trumpets, smashing pitchers, and saying the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And we see this plan in action in verses 19 to 22. The sound and the sword of the Lord. The sounds and words are what bring down Midian. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. So it's at night. It's at midnight. I don't know about you, but when I have to get up to go to the bathroom at midnight, whenever that happens, I get delirious and groggy. When my daughter comes running in, if she's not feeling well, well, oh, what's going on? Can you imagine being in the middle of the night and hearing trumpets and smashing things and fire all around? I mean, it shows that it's what the Lord does, but you can understand a little bit by what's, uh, what's about to happen. Just as they posted the watch, they blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers that were in their hands. So smash, trumpet, sounds, sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Verse 20, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And notice what happens. Verse 21. Every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. What's going on? The sounds. And what do we do? And verse 22, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set the Lord set every man's sword against his companion. It is the Lord who does it. They're not doing anything, really. They're just blowing their trumpets. They're doing what the Lord has said. But it's the Lord who brings about this great Salvation. These 300 men toot their horns, but in reality, they cannot toot their horns. There's your dad joke for you tonight. 
They cannot toot their own horns because it's salvation that comes from the Lord. The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. So much so that this, this uh, army that looked like locusts is fleeing to Beth Acacia towards Zerera and as far as the border of Abel Maholah by Tabith. They're fleeing to the Jordan. They're fleeing east to the Jordan. They want to get across the Jordan. They want to run into the, um, uh, into the desert to get away from what is going on. And the irony is, notice how they said the sword of the Lord. Did they swing any swords yet? They haven't swung any swords. It's just trumpets. Do, do, do. That was weird, but that's okay. They sounded the trumpets, the sword of the Lord, and of Gideon. That's how they brought that salvation. That's how God brought this salvation. They didn't swing one sword at all. But there's still cleanup that has to be done, and there's still issues that have to be dealt with. And so we see in verses 23 through 25 the capture of Oreb and Zeb, uh, these two princes of Midian. Verse 23 the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. These are probably the men who left. These are probably the men, the 32,000 or whatever, that were, you know, these, these now are being used, and they're, they're being used to now capture and finish the job. Some people view this negatively. I don't know if there's anything in the passage to indicate that sort of thing. Possibly they didn't seek the Lord. I don't know. But in any case, it's as uh, Henry says, the men of Israel out of Naphtali and Asher who did this were now such as now came from those distant countries, but the same that had listed themselves but it had been sent away. Those who were fearful and afraid to fight now took heart. The battle's almost uh, done when the worst was over and were ready enough to divide the spoil, though backward, to make the onset. Those also that might not fight, though they had a mind to it and were disbanded by order from God, did not as those return in great anger, but waited for an opportunity of doing service and pursuing the victory, though they were denied the honor of helping to force the line. So, the ones who are fearful now don't have to be as fearful because the battle has already been won. So Midian uh, is fleeing. Israel is in pursuit. Gideon also sends requests from Ephraim. Calls to the, the men of the mountains of Ephraim saying, Come down, verse 24, against the Midianites and seize them uh, from the watering places as far as Beth, Bera, and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth, Bera, and the Jordan. And there they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, which is probably the rock that became namesake based upon this moment. And Zeb they killed, same thing, at the winepress of Zeb. Again, the, the, the namesake for what happens here. Maybe there is some poetic justice to Gideon was doing what when the Lord, angel Lord appeared to him? Threshing, threshing the wheat at where? The wine press. Now we see the Midianite prince is killed at a wine press. And they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Ephraim helps. But as we're going to see next time and as the commentators point out, there are a lot of battles going on with Gideon. There's battle with Baal, we see in chapter 6. There's battle with the Midianites in chapter 7. But then in chapter 8, we're going to see something a little more discouraging. The battle with Israel. 
Ephraim gets their knickers in a knot. You didn't ask us to come help. They get upset. They get grumpy. There's going to be more of infighting uh, even after God, through Gideon, after this great battle we see, after this great victory that comes from the Lord, there's going to be infighting amongst the people of God. But we'll get to that next week, Lord willing. For now, we can bask in God's glory and praise him for the methods that he uses. Because we must recognize that God's methods are not our methods, are they? When it comes to salvation of sinners, it's not our method. When it comes to the accomplishment of salvation, think about it, a cross. I mean, there's a reason it's called a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I mean, the cross was an implement, was an instrument of death, was an instrument of torture, was an instrument for those who should receive the worst punishment, the lowest of the low, the worst of people. And yet God used that as a way uh, as the way of salvation, the accomplishment by way of the cross. Even when it comes to the application, how God saves, how God works, how God applies by the Spirit. It is through the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Even mentioning to people that God is the one who saves, believe on Christ. People struggle with that. People always want to bring in and always want to be like verse 2 and say, it was my own hand. That's why there's Arminians out there who say, God provide the way, but it's me who chose it. That's why the Arminians are semi-Pelagian. Pelagians say that salvation is all of man, don't they? Semi-Pelagians say it's part God, part man, but it's the reason it's semi-Pelagianism and not semi-Augustinianism. And Augustinianism says it's all of the Lord. The reason it's not semi-Augustinianism, because the final thing in Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism is what? Man. Man boasting himself, I chose the Lord, I believed on Christ. No, yes, we believe on Christ, but Ephesians 2 says that what? Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. And you cannot be willing unless the Lord makes you willing in the day of his power. You cannot be, you cannot be able to save unless God changes your hearts. It is God who brings that salvation. So salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of a way that is perplexing to people. That's why the Jews struggled with it. The Pharisees were thinking that, yeah, Jesus, uh, the Messiah is going to come. and He's going to use swords and guns and tanks and march on Rome. That's what they thought it was going to be. But that's not how God brought salvation. He brought, it, brought a greater salvation by his way. I think this also applies to the church as well when it comes to what the church's function and purpose is. The main thing is always the word of God. Men who preach the word of God, God's people who need the word of God, God's people need the word of God. That's what the church is meant to be about. That's why it is our sword, isn't it? The word of God is our sword according according to Ephesians chapter 6. We must be a people of the word. We see the word is that double-edged sword in Hebrews chapter 4. And even for Gideon, what was his sword? It was the word of God. The Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said throughout this entire chapter. Here's what's going to happen, Gideon. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what shall take place. Believe it, trust in it, because God's methods are better than ours. God's methods are better than ours when it comes to the bringing in of his 
kingdom. That's why Paul said, preach the word. Why do you preach the word? Because there's going to be guys who come in and A, there's going to be false teachers and B, people who want false teachers. So what do we need? We need the word of God and we need to function as a church according to the word of God. Paul would never be invited to church growth conferences today. Never be invited to church growth conferences today, would he? Yep, just preach the word. Yep, that's what you need to do. You mean you rightly divide the word, do what it says, don't avoid the tough stuff, just preach. Yep, that's exactly what you need to do. That is what the pastor is called to. As we learned from Pastor Naphtali in Acts chapter 20, I commit you to what? To God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And even for the Christian, even for individuals, we want everything but the word of God sometimes. Brethren, that's what we need. We need to be fed by it. The means of grace is what God does for us. God does to us what God says to us as he speaks to us and as he feeds us with his word. We struggle with a certain sin. Yes, I'm not saying don't cut things off or don't try to grow in those areas, but you cannot do that unless you are nourished. You cannot do that unless you are fed. I think I mentioned this before. heard from Pastor Butler. Chris Austin. Sat on a Sunday, heard someone's problems, heard someone's issues, and said, I'm really sorry with what you're going through. I'll see you next Sunday. I'm not against counseling, by the way, but sometimes we forget the importance of the means of grace in our Christian walk. And so we need to be encouraged by the word. We need to be reminded of the importance of the word and recognize God's methods are better than ours. We think our methods are better than God's, but God's methods are better than Ours. And even then, we can get antsy. We can feel like we need to do more of this, we do more of that, and things that are not the main thing. The main thing for the people of God is to be fed by the Word, to worship Him, that we might have strength as we engage in our daily lives. And we'll just close by some encouragement. I love what Henry says concerning how God knows our needs as well. And God does, as He meets us with His Word doesn't he? There's different types of sheep, according to Martin Booser, according to Ezekiel. There's strong sheep, there's herding sheep, there's weak sheep, there's wayward sheep, and there's lost sheep. And God meets all of them with the word, doesn't he? He meets us where we're at with what we need, and he knows our frame. Henry says, God knows the infirmities of his people and what great encouragement they may sometimes take from a small matter. And therefore, know, therefore, knowing beforehand what would occur to Gideon in that very part of the camp to which he would go down, he orders him to go down and hearken to what they said, that he might more firmly believe what God said. It's a reminder that God is for us. It's a reminder that we can cast our burdens upon him. And it's a reminder that he knows best. Or to put it in a Pauline way, my grace is made sufficient in weakness. Let us pray. Lord our God, we are thankful that your grace is made sufficient in weakness. And we are thankful even when it comes to the preaching of your word and men you set apart. We are thankful that you do set apart men who are jars of clay, that your glory might shine forth. So often, O Lord, we try certain things. So often, O Lord, we try to do things that are not in accordance with your word and Yet often you remind us how often we need you. 
We pray that you would forgive us for our pride and our arrogance. Please forgive us for being easily offended. Please forgive us for thinking uh, that our opinion matters in certain scenarios without having wisdom. Please forgive us for boasting in good things. We ask and pray that you give us a sober mind, that you have a, help us to have a sober understanding. Help us to pray like Daniel, to recognize that you give wisdom. And when you give wisdom, may we thank you for it. And may that apply to other areas and aspects of our lives as well. May we ask, and when you, we receive it, may we give you the glory. When we ask and you answer or don't answer, may we still give you the glory. Thank you that you know what is best. Thank you that salvation is of you. Thank you for how um, you provide for us with all that we need, even when it comes to our salvation. We know that we have much guilt and we're thankful for justification. We know that we have the corruption. We are thankful for sanctification. Your wisdom is seen in how you have saved us, in the cross work of Christ, in the application of what he has done for us. And we pray that we would marvel at what you've done. We pray that we would be in awe of what you've done. And we pray that we'd be uplifted and encouraged by what you've done and help us to hold fast and to be faithful to what your word says. So thank you for your patience and long suffering. Thank you for Christ and his finished work. And we pray that you be with us now by your spirit, we pray.